Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning comes from Proverbs 21 verse 11. When the scoffer is punished, the simple is made wise. But when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. This proverb is very similar to one we had back in chapter 19. And basically it's two-pronged. First, when punishment happens, when punishment is doled out, or when justice happens, then a lesson is taught, and wisdom is learned. And second, wise men learn readily. They are open to teaching and receptive to knowledge. And there are many ways to go with these truths, but first the definition is, is in order. What is a scoffer? A scoffer is a person who in his pride or her pride, disrespects and dishonors lawful authorities. A scoffer is a person who disrespects and dishonors lawful authorities. Whether that be God, the scriptures, parents, or the government. A scoffer mocks truth and he sows the seeds of anarchy in his behavior. In his pride, he is foolish and he is simple. He doesn't understand what he is doing. And punishment is a wake-up call for him. It is a clear instruction that he is not in charge and that he may not scorn those who are rightfully in charge. And he may not expect to get away with scorning them. Now whether or not the punished scoffer actually learns his lesson is something that time will tell. We pray that he does, but regardless, those who observe can learn volumes, and swift justice makes the simple wise. Now for application. For those in authority, this is an exhortation to execute justice and to punish wrongdoers for the sake of the whole. If it's a family, the parents will make their task simpler by swift and just penalties against wrongs. Siblings learn quickly when they see their brothers or sisters suffer the consequences of their sins. When Johnny sees Billy get the belt for back chat, both Johnny and Billy learn a lesson. And if Johnny is wise, he won't have to learn it the hard way like Billy did. And so the parents kill two birds with one stone. And this principle is just as true for leaders in churches, in civil governments, in militaries, or any group of people. For those under authority, this is an exhortation to be reverent, submissive, and observant. You don't want to be the one who is punished, and you don't want to be the negative example. So don't be a scoffer. Instead, be reverent, submissive, and observant. And how do you avoid being a scoffer? By humility. 
Even if you are simple, if you are willing to pay attention, you will become wise. And if you are wise, you will learn to remember what you observe and even to seek instruction. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing, please kneel. missionary journey to the region of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. In our text today, they make the return journey, backtracking the way they came, and they return home to Antioch in Syria. In the larger context of the book of Acts, this is the completion of a segment that started way back in chapter 13, when Paul and Barnabas were set apart and sent on a mission at the beginning of that chapter. And they went to Cyprus, and then north into Asia Minor, and then after today's text, we'll be looking at the Jerusalem Council, and the church's decision about what to require of Gentiles who convert to Christianity. And chapter 15 is very much the center of the book of Acts. But this missionary journey, and the experiences of Paul and Barnabas on it, are the necessary groundwork for the outcome of the Jerusalem Council. And what they experienced was the power of God and His work among the Gentiles, as we've been seeing and as we'll see again momentarily. Paul and Barnabas start out in Derby. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Now it appears that they did not experience the same opposition in Derby that they had experienced and encountered in all the other stops they've made so far. They ministered there and were by all accounts very successful in Derby. Uh, when they preached the gospel that city, they made many disciples. And then they turn around and they go back. And now, here it's interesting that they turned around and went back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch because there are many reasons why this doesn't necessarily make sense. They, uh, first, the first reason is it's the long way around. I mean, they've done their job. They, they were sent as missionaries to go plant churches, and they went. They went to Cyprus, and then they went to Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derby, and, and now they've reached the end of their trip, that it's time to go home. Um, and and if uh, in their in their trip they been they sort of made a large circle where they left Antioch. Let's see if we're gonna do it from your side. They left Antioch and they went west in, over to Cyprus and they traveled all the way across Cyprus and then they went north up into Antioch and then they went back east to Iconium, south to Lystra and then farther east over to Derby. So the fastest trip for would have been for them to go south and, and, and east a little bit more, down to Tarsus, which was close to Derby, and it was Paul's hometown, and then make the short trip down to Antioch in Syria. That's not what they do. Um, 
they added many more miles to their trip by getting three quarters of the way around the circle and then doing a U-turn and coming back. They could have made the so they could have made the relatively easy trip from Derby to Tarsus and then back to Antioch. So that's the first reason it doesn't make a lot of sense to go back. But the second is that we've just been talking about what happened to them in Antioch, in Iconium, and in Lystra. In Lystra, Paul was stoned by the impetuous pagans. In Iconium, there was a plot to stone Paul and Barnabas, so they fled. Them from, they, they fled from the opposing Jews and the leaders of Iconium. And in Antioch, they were run out of town. And in fact, when they got out of town, they shook the dust off of their sandals against the city. But nonetheless, God has a purpose, and God sent them back to these very towns where they had recently been expelled from them uh, for a purpose. And in verse, verse 22, we read what, why they went back. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tri tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So there are three things going on here in this verse that are instrumental to Paul and Barnabas in their mission. There's three things in this verse. First is the strengthening of the souls of the disciples. That, that there was a purpose for them to go back to the places where they had been expelled from and go the long way back home. First one was to strengthen the souls of the disciples. The second was to exhort them to continue in the faith. And third was saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And which means is they're warning these new Christians about the requirements and the rewards of faith. They're, they're saying, we must, through many tribulations, that's the requirement, there's going to be suffering as part of this Christian life that you have now embraced, and the rewards, because those sufferings are the path. Those are what you enter into the kingdom of God through. So let's look at each one of these three things that are going on. First is strengthening the souls of the disciples. And that means teaching them doctrine and reassuring them of the truth of the gospel which they have embraced. These, these are new believers. This was necessary because they were new converts. They had accepted Christ. They had embraced the apostles. And then in short order, they saw the opposition of, against the gospel and the persecution of these apostles whom they had embraced, and the apostles left them. The apostles fled to the next town. So here God comes, brings these strangers into town and just you know, wallops them over the head with the truth, and, and they're just like, wow, this is exciting, this is new, this is salvation. This is the answer to my problem. But they see the result in the physical lives of... See, if you look at the, the way they believed before, the Jews and to the pagans, they, they served the gods that they served in order to get the physical benefits of it. They, the pagans were trying to appease the gods so they would have physical blessing. Uh, even the Jews, they were seeking uh, the physical blessing of a kingdom on earth. They wanted, they wanted, uh, they, they, they had the, the community of the faithful, the Jews, and, and they, were, they thought they were special and, and they were better than the pagans. 
But now these Christians come along, and, and, and the people who believe what they're saying, the new Christians, all of a sudden, they lose that security of what is familiar, and they embrace the truth of a God in heaven who loves them and who's died for them. Which is miraculous, and it's been—I mean, it, it was attested to by miracles, etc. But, but it's a big step. So it makes sense that Paul and Barnabas want to strengthen their souls. These people are—these people are in—they're they're in the fire. They're—they're they're being tested. They need this encouragement. So. And on top of it, they were still confronted with the opposition after the apostles left. They left their synagogues and pagan gods, and they needed this strength to persevere. And the second thing that Paul and Barnabas come to show up and do is to exhort them to continue in the faith. Now this, this is, again, a reiteration of the gospel. This... They're, they're saying, the faith that you have embraced, even though it comes with all this tribulation and trouble, even though it's hard, even though there's opposition, even though there's suffering, is the truth. It saves you. It's salvific. Faith in Jesus saves you from your sin, and it's the only way that you can be at peace with God and go to heaven when you die. And have eternal life and have resurrection from the dead. That's the only thing that saves you. And so they needed to be exhorted. So first it was a reiteration of the promises of the gospel. But second, it also carried with it the warning of the gospel. Remember the warning? Behold, despisers, and you will be, you will be destroyed. The gospel is a dividing line. It has, it has promises and great promises, and it's the only way of salvation. It's the only truth. But rejection of the gospel is embracing death. So this exhortation to continue in the faith is both a reiteration of the promises and the warnings of the gospel. Jesus is God, and if you don't serve him, he will judge all who refuse to serve him. Even if it looks like the pagans are in control, or the Jews are, are in control. Even though they have more power on earth, though they really don't, it looks like they're, they have the upper hand. But, but don't buy into it. You have the truth. Stick with it. Continue in the faith. And finally, the third thing that Paul and Barnabas are coming back to these churches to do is to warn them about... Warn them. It's not quite right. It's it's to tell them about the nature of the Christian life. This was only fair. They were they were being blatantly open and clear about what it would mean for these new converts to live in this new way. Paul and Barnabas are declaring new realities for these new believers. There are many tribulations in this life. And you will suffer them. That is a part of living on this world, in a fallen world, as a witness of a holy and perfect God. You will suffer. There are many tribulations. But that does not mean that Jesus has abandoned you. 
You will suffer, but Jesus is there with you. Those tribulations are the path through which we arrive at our final destination. The kingdom of God. In all of this, we learn that Paul and Barnabas have a yearning and a heart for these new believers. They love them. They yearn for their salvation and peace and grace. They don't just pop in, turn their world upside down, and then leave the rest up to God. It's not like they just run around baptizing everybody and disappearing. That's not how they minister. They go the extra mile. They love them. They risk life and limb to demonstrate their love to these new disciples by their words, by their actions, and by their presence. They come back. They encourage. They exhort. And they love them. And next we see a very practical demonstration of this in, in the appointment of elders. Verse 23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. There's a debate among scholars. Commentators debate um, the meaning of the term appointed here. So when they had appointed elders in every church, um, and they, they, they usually debate this in order to defend their own convictions or prejudices as to the manner in which elder selection should be done. I mean, this is a very practical thing that Paul and Barnabas are doing. They're appointing elders in all these churches. Um, but and, and, and it's interesting to me because I think it's a little bit of a red herring in the context of the text. That's not what Luke is worried about. He's not worried about whether Paul appointed them or if um, or if uh, they, the congregation selected them. In fact, Luke's telling us a story. He's not so much interested in prescribing church polity. Remember when we talked about how the Holy Spirit works? You know, sometimes it's through the laying on of hands. Sometimes the people just are, are you know, Peter's preaching to Cornelius and, and, and the people just have the Spirit and start speaking in tongues. It, it's not... It's not prescribed. In Acts 6, the congregation selects deacons because there's a need. And in chapter 1, the, the apostles cast lots to replace Judas. Here, the text isn't even clear whether Paul and Barnabas appointed elders or if they recognized and affirmed the congregation's choice and selections of their, of their own leaders. But the point is that from the very beginning of the church... And these new church plants in Gentile lands, elders were there. God had elders there, and elders were instrumental in leading the church from the very beginning. It's a biblical form of church leadership to have elders. Paul and Barnabas could not, in good conscience, leave these fledgling churches without leaders. 
That's not the way authority, it's not the way Christ's kingdom works. He provides leaders for his people. The apostles had come and started a new thing. They proclaimed the lordship of Jesus Christ over their new, these new believers' lives and over all things. They said, you are Christ, you have his name on you, and now in him you are lords over everything. Now, go. No, 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 that's not what he says. They come back and they say, no, you need to go to the scriptures, you need to go to the men that God selects to choose to lead you. Because it's all well and good that Christ is Lord over everything, but people are sheep, and sheep need a shepherd. And ultimately, we all do answer to Jesus. But if sheep don't have shepherds, they scatter. Paul and Barnabas understood this, and they were shepherds themselves. They were happy to act as the leaders of the church. Paul writes authoritatively to them in his letters. Paul acts as a pastor and an elder to them while he's there preaching the gospel and ministering to them. He's leading them. But Paul and Barnabas had to go. They were on a mission. So they delegated authority. Men were called to be Christ's representative to the congregation. God gave them leaders. And it's a two-way street, though. Because these men would answer for the way in which they led the congregation. This was no light decision to be made. And we see the solemnity of the process in this verse. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They accomplished the work by the spiritual exercises of prayer and fasting. They took this seriously. It wasn't something that they just showed up, oh, you know, let's, who wants to be an elder this, this, you know, now? Just, yeah, are you interested? Go for it. That's not how it goes. This takes focus. It takes time. It takes meditation. And then when they selected elders, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And that was a great act of faith. Paul and Barnabas recognized the faith of the, the elders. But more than that, they knew that it would have to be the Lord who would shepherd them. That's why they were commended to the Lord. Because Paul and Barnabas weren't going to be there to shepherd them any longer. These men answered directly to God for the way in which they led these people. And the elders recognized their answerability to Jesus Christ, which is a frightful thing. He's Lord of heaven and earth, and he has the power to send not your, just your body to the grave, but your soul into eternal damnation. It's a frightful thing, especially for new believers. Wait a second, you showed up six months ago and I believe, but it's only been six months. What are you asking of me? How can I do this? How, how, I'm, I'm only a man. But this was not just a frightful thing, it's also a joyous thing. 
Because they did believe the gospel. They had the Holy Spirit. They were a community of believers. And they have recently been taken from the darkness of unbelief to the light of the gospel. These people were on fire for Jesus. This was, this was, this was everything. This was their life. They were, they were new converts. They loved Jesus. They were sold out for him. It, it was an honor to be selected to lead. Even though it was a scary thing. But by faith, they trusted in God and the Holy Spirit. And Paul and Barnabas taught them how to do that. And showed them how to do it by appointing them and commending them to Jesus. Having accomplished all this, Paul and Barnabas complete their journey. Verses 24 and 25. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. These are the last stops of the first journey. So originally, when they left Cyprus, they went up to Perga. They didn't stay there for whatever reason. They, went, they just went north up to Antioch in, in Pisidia. But now they, they preach the gospel in Perga. So... When they preached the word in Perga, then they went down to Italia. So they, they don't skip a beat, do they? <laughs> They're still on a mission trip. But it's, it, this is a, their way of life. This isn't just something that is temporary for Paul and Barnabas. Wherever they go for the rest of their life, they're preaching the gospel. It doesn't matter if they're showing back up at a place that they were six months ago, or seven months ago, or a year ago, or when they come back through in five years. It doesn't matter. They're going to preach the gospel. That's what they do. They're God's witnesses. So they leave Antioch and go back south, down to Perga, and they preach the gospel. And they go down to Italia, and it's just another, uh, uh, Italia is just another port city. And from there they go back home. Verse 26. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Paul and Barnabas have come full circle. They've accomplished their mission. They have the joyous homecoming of victorious warriors. They had been selected. They had been commended to the grace of God for a great work, and they had completed it. God had brought them back home safe after about two years and nearly a thousand miles of travel and peril. And persecution and great prosperity in spiritual things. And now that they're home, they tell their friends all about what happened. Verses 27 28. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas were faithful, and yet they knew that they were merely pawns in the mighty hand of a God who controls all things. Who did what Paul and Barnabas did? Paul and Barnabas did. They were selected, they were sent, they got on the boat, they went to Cyprus, they preached the gospel there, they, they made Elymas go blind. They, they got back on another boat, they went up into 
Antioch, and they, they heal the lame man, they preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They caused division in Iconium. They were worshipped and then stoned in Lystra, and then they preached the gospel in Derby, and then they went right back through all those towns and preached the gospel again. They were the ones doing it, right? No, not right. They had been faithful to do what they were set apart for, but it was God who had done the work. It was God who had called the Gentiles to salvation. Paul and Barnabas are just putting one slip, one foot in front of the other. Living by faith. Living by the Spirit of God. By God's grace, they did all those things. But God accomplished it in them. And after they reported the blessing and the work of God, they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Actually, this is the time right now, this verse, 28, so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. That's when Paul wrote the book of Galatians to the churches that he just left. In that book, the primary instruction and concern is about the Judaizers and their oppression of the Gentile converts to Christianity. And Paul, Paul's very serious about saying, no, no, we've left the law. It doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. We don't need to be circumcised. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. And the fact that he wrote it in this verse, right before the next chapter, which is chapter 15, and next week we get into it, because that issue is going to take center stage in the Jerusalem Council. This is a major roadblock to the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's, Paul is deeply ingrained in this battle before we get there in the Jerusalem Council. I mean, he's, he writes the, in a polemical book, the whole epistle of Galatians, against that sort of, of uh, false teaching. It's a very important development in the spread of the gospel to the world, uh, but I digress because we're going to get into that next week. For now, let's recap some instruction from today's text. First, we see that Paul and Barnabas were persistent in ministry. They were not in ministry for the excitement of the thing. It wasn't just to go out and get an authentic experience in a third world country. This isn't a week-long summer trip so that they can feel good about themselves. That's not what this is. Paul and Barnabas are genuinely interested in spreading the gospel message of love to new believers, to new Christians, to anyone who will hear the message and believe. They are self-sacrificing and they're willing to do whatever they can to further the gospel. They're willing to put themselves in harm's way on the behalf of these new believers. Even to the point of being stoned and then coming back to encourage and strengthen and warn them. Moreover, they're happy to repeat the promises of the gospel again and again and again. It's good for you to hear again that Jesus died for your sins and you are safe in Him for all eternity despite whatever suffering you go through. They were happy to reiterate the promises and strengthen their faith in exhortation and in honest declaration of coming hardships. 
They speak the truth and nothing less. This is also abundantly clear that Paul, the, the fact that Paul and Barnabas love the disciples and care about them is abundantly clear in Paul's letters where he exhorts and he teaches and he warns passionately against sin and false teaching where he always makes mention of them in his prayers and he prays without ceasing for them and he longs to be with them. He loves them. So the first thing we see is Paul and Barnabas and their persistence and honesty in ministry. The second, second thing we see is the wisdom of God in the selection of leaders. God selected Paul and Barnabas. He commended them to ministry and they set out. And Paul and Barnabas turn right around and do the same thing in the churches where they go. This is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls men to serve. And he also provides men to serve. He establishes them. He upholds them. And they are commended to him and by him. God is building his kingdom in this world, in his world. And elders are a large part of that. This is the kindness and the wisdom of God. Paul and Barnabas knew the necessity for leadership, and they also knew the hardships of leadership. They were examples. It's the leaders who take the brunt of opposition. And Paul and Barnabas knew that firsthand. It's the leaders who are tasked with caring for and teaching the congregation with discerning wise courses of action and with the difficult task of maintaining order and practicing discipline when necessary. All of these things are impossible to be accomplished by mere men. It has to be done in faith and it has to be done in the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's all done in faith. And for, that, for us, that means it would behoove us to pray for wise and faithful elders. For men who will faithfully represent Christ and love their people with wisdom and grace and the Holy Spirit. And finally, um, so we've got Paul and Barnabas' honesty and persistence in ministry. We've got God's provision of elders. And, and finally, we can rejoice that God did choose Paul and Barnabas, and that he used them mightily, and he gave us this faithful accounting of their works that shows us his will for the salvation of all men, and his purpose to accomplish it in the face of all false worship and all false idols. This is a powerful story, this mission trip. Remember where Paul came from. He was the Judaizer. He was the one persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. God did a 180 with him. Now he's out spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. He knows it's only by the power of Jesus Christ that this is possible. And in this story, we see the gospel and its power to overcome all obstacles.
It becomes the great dividing line. And Jesus is the Lord over all things. Gentiles come freely to Him. And Jews come freely to Him. And in Him, God is accomplishing the recreation of the world. And He's doing it through mere men. Like Paul and Barnabas. Like the elders in these new churches. And like you and like me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is also the Sunday in which we commemorate the transfiguration of our Lord. In the transfiguration, God revealed Jesus Christ as His Son. He said, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Because of the resurrection in Christ's inauguration and coronation at Easter and at the Ascension, God is accomplishing his will in our world despite the best laid plans of men. God prescribed, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then he raised him from the dead and established Jesus as king of kings and lord of lords. And because he's reigning in heaven, that is why Jesus could send out Paul and Barnabas as his ambassadors to the churches in Asia, Asia Minor. His authority is absolute and all-encompassing. And he reigns by his spirit. He will be heard. He reigns by his spirit whom he generously bestows upon his children, you and me. But we must believe and we must confess that we are his. And he is ours. And that is what we do when we come to this table. At this table, God gives us the blessed promise of peace and life. And at this table, we receive the miraculous and gracious and merciful gift of our Lord's death on the cross. We are at once destroyed and renewed. We are killed and reborn. Our souls are strengthened. We are exhorted to continue in our faith. And we are promised that whatever trials we encounter here on this earth, our Lord is here with us, and He is waiting for us with glory to be received into His everlasting kingdom. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.